Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. We know, Courtney, it's hard to believe, but we're just about to wrap up season two of the Why Are They So Angry podcast. I really can't believe it, Aunt Carol. This year has gone by so fast, and we've hit our one-year milestone, and we've been right there reporting not just the past, but history as it happens. I'm looking at you, January 6th. Oh, yeah. I remember that capital chaos. That was our first, uh, actually, that was our first episode of this uh, particular season. So yeah, history in the making. So it's it's been a busy season. And according to Spotify Statistics Court, we released 1,392 minutes of content across 37 episodes, and we've been heard in 14 countries this season. And all this time, we've looked at systemic racism from a lot of perspectives, everything from the military to recreation and leisure. And you know what? We've just scratched the surface since every day you and I discover ways in which systemic racism has impacted Black African-Americans in the past and the present. It's been up and down and learning about how the tentacles of systemic racism affect us all. We've learned how to temper some of the dark parts of history with stories of triumph. And this is what this year in episode is all about. We're going to be putting some happy endings or at least some positive updates to a few of the stories that we covered last year. Well, well, that's right. Okie dokie. I like that plan. So let's return to a few episodes to update our listeners on what your grandmother and my mother would call new news. So let's start with the episode Sisters in the Struggle. Now that was the one about the unsung female heroines of the civil rights movement. Among them was Claudette Colvin. Now it was Colvin who actually preceded Rosa Parks in protesting segregated seating on Montgomery, Alabama buses. When back in March, 1955, she was only 15, and she was arrested for refusing to give up her seat to a white person. She's now seeking to get her conviction expunged. Now, at a news conference recently, after filing a motion asking the juvenile courts to seal, destroy, and expunge her records, Colvin, who's now 82, said, I guess you can say that now I'm no longer a juvenile delinquent. Now, Colvin's legal team filed a request with the Montgomery Court 
uh, to clear her record. And um, the record is basically she had been charged with two counts of violating the city's segregation ordinance and one felony count of assaulting a police officer. Now, all that, even though she's the one that was dragged off the bus. Now, she was convicted on all counts in juvenile court, but the segregation convictions had been overturned on appeal. Now, according to Colvin's attorney, Philip Insler Colvin was placed on indefinite probation for the police officer assault conviction and was never informed that her probation ended when she became of age. He said she thought she'd been on probation this entire time. Now, Montgomery County District Attorney Daryl Bailey said he was supporting Colvin's motion to, quote, forever set aside and seal the records that taint Miss Colvin as a violator of the law. Bailey said, quote, her actions back in March 1954 were conscientious, not criminal, inspired, not illegal. They should have led to praise and not prosecution. Now, Gloria Laster, who is Colvin's younger sister, told CNN that Colvin wants to get her record clear so she can be an example to her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Her sister said, this is going to be her legacy to them. She sat down on the bus so that you can stand up and take your rightful place as an American. And that's what she did and wants to tell her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. This is why she's doing this. And that is a great follow-up to an amazing story about Claudette Colvin. And a lot of people don't know her story. And I'm so glad that she, her family, and those attorneys, along with the congressman, are working towards that goal of getting those records expunged because she deserves her place in history without being tainted by any of those phony felonies that are on her record. Oh, without a doubt, Courtney. I agree with you there. Now, let's talk about one of our scary episodes, one that was titled Sundown Towns. Now, according to the site Black Past, sundown towns are all white communities, neighborhoods, or counties that exclude Blacks and other minorities through the use of discriminatory laws, harassment, and threats or use of violence. Now, the name derives from the signs that had been posted at city limits and verbal warnings issued to Blacks that, Although they might be allowed to work or travel in a community during the daytime, they just better leave by sundown. Now, it's difficult to make an accurate account of uh, how many of these sundown towns existed or even maybe still exist, but historians estimate there were up to 10,000 sundown towns in the United States between 1890 and 1960, and mostly those were in the Midwest and the West, not in the South, like you would think. Now, although we don't see blatant signs telling Black African-Americans to stay out of particular cities or neighborhoods, it's well known that there are places they aren't welcome and that could be dangerous. Studies show there is an increasing number of racially motivated violent incidents along with young uh, incidents of young Black Americans going missing at alarming rates around the country. Now, the most recent cases of Jelani Day and Daniel Robinson are coming to the forefront due to the lack of coverage and law enforcement assistance in those cases. But we have some new news. Well, thanks to technology, 
there might be a tool to address this problem. James Samuel Jr., a black veteran, has developed an app that can track uh, racial incidents and missing black people. The app is called Angel Tech, and it can live stream video and location sharing capabilities. So this is some high tech stuff. It sends uh, that information to loved ones in real time. And the app has the potential to decrease the number of dangerous incidents Black people often face and give their families peace of mind when they uh, go missing or are in dangerous areas of the country. Well, that's good to hear. With news outlets finally bringing attention to what people call missing white woman syndrome, which means when a, a non-person of color, preferably a white woman, goes missing, you get front page coverage. You get, think Lacey Peterson, Gabrielle Petito. And then when it's a Black person, you normally don't get that coverage. And that is a large disparity when it comes to missing Black and brown people. But this technology, which is very Wakanda, very sci-fi, has the potential to, like you said, bring a lot of peace of mind to people and their friends and family if or when they go missing. That is so true. So hopefully that would become a technology no one would have to use, but better to have and not need than need and not have, as your grandmother would say. Now, there's another story that we really are excited to share with uh, our listeners. And uh, it, we, we uh, reach back to the episode called Black Beach Bonanza, Paradise Stolen. And in that episode, we talked about the thousands of acres of beachfront property that Black African-Americans once owned and lost during the 20th century. Now, one of those properties was Bruce's Beach. In 1912, Willa and Charles Bruce bought land in Manhattan Beach, a Los Angeles seaside suburb and they turned it into a thriving resort run for and by Black residents despite harassment and violence from white neighbors, including the Ku Klux Klan. But in the 1920s, the Manhattan Beach City Council used eminent domain laws to take the land from the Bruces. Purportedly, they were going to use it for a park, yet the land lay unused for years until it was transferred to the state in 1948. But here's the good news that property finally will be returned to the family's descendants in a move hailed as a milestone in the fight for reparations and the return of land stolen from people of color. Now, it's a complicated system, uh, Courtney, on how this all came to be, because before the land could be returned, first, the California legislature had to approve the action. Now, the action, the legislation, which was unanimously approved by state lawmakers, was necessary to allow the start of complex legal proceedings uh, in order to transfer ownership of Bruce's Beach um, back to the family. And that complex legal maneuvering included having the L.A. County officials agree to return the valuable property to the, the descendants. And um, by returning it, that would actually grant them the wealth they have been denied for generations because, you know, beachfront property in California is astronomically valuable. Now, once the legal maneuverings were finished, the descendants of Willa and Charles Bruce, including the couple's great-great-grandson, watched California's governor, Gavin Newsom, sign a law that allows ownership of the property to be transferred back to the family. Uh, governor Newsom 
while he was signing the bill, apologized for how the land was taken. And uh, there was a big ceremony during that signing. Now, Patricia Bruce, a cousin of Willa and Charles Bruce, told the Associated Press, quote, there are other families waiting for this very day to have their land returned to them. And if you listen to our episode uh, about beaches that were stolen, you'll hear about some of those uh, lands. So it's an exciting day for the Bruce Beach story. Well, this makes me so happy. When we did those episodes on stolen land, it opened my eyes and I'm sure so many other people's eyes to how much wealth has been stolen, not lost, but stolen through unsavory means and by the help of local and city governments to steal from African-American families who could have bolstered themselves up with that generational wealth. So I'm so happy to see that one of the stories that we covered within the same year has a happy ending where the Bruce family is finally getting justice. You bet. Well, some would say give quote, giving the Bruce family their land back was a gift. But like you said, it was really the return of land that was stolen. But speaking of gifts, and since it's that time of year, Courtney, I think you have some recommendations for our listeners of interesting gift ideas. So not only is this episode dedicated to tying up loose ends on some of these episodes, but we're going to have a chance to hear about some gifts that could be tied up and put under the Christmas tree. That's right. It's that time of year. It's the giving season. And with at least 21 holidays between December and January, representing all faiths, cultures, and traditions, some people may find it daunting to find that perfect gift. But we here at Why Are They So Angry are here to help, especially for those of you who would like to patron Black-owned businesses this holiday season. Now, the first company I'd like to highlight is for those of us who just can't get it together when it comes for a gift and we think, I wish someone could put together a gift for me and send it. Well, that company exists. It's called Bifties. Now, Bifties started in 2016 out of what company founder Constance Patton said necessity. In 2016, her friends were doing a Secret Santa gift exchange with the only rule being that the gifts had to be from a Black-owned business. And after seeing her friends struggle to not only find Black-owned businesses, but also not sure what constituted a Black-owned business, business, because people are like, well, can I, my niece is selling bracelets, does that count? My mom does Mary Kay, does that count? And the answer is yes and no. But that's when Constance saw that vacuum that needed to be filled. So what is Bifties, okay? Bifties is a creative curated gift box company that creates unique themed gift sets with black owned brands. So you go onto the Bifties website and you have the option to select through and make your own gift box or select a curated box from them. You just put in a person's interests, colors, things like that, even their love language, and they will put a box together in a beautiful form and ship it for you, and you are the star of Christmas. And it takes the guesswork out of supporting a Black business. Now, they have an amazing internet presence on Instagram, so please follow them at Bifty's Gifts and on Instagram, and you can tell them that we sent you, or you can visit their website if you want to purchase from them at www.bifties.com. 
Wow, that sounds like a really uh, interesting entrepreneurial effort. Bifties. Hmm. I'll have to keep that in mind next time I have a gift to give. Mm hmm. Now, the next is epic every day. Now, kids love to wear superheroes and princesses and, and all kinds of stuff on their clothes. But for African-American kids, at, up until recently, it was very hard to find characters that look like them. You might find a Miles Morales Spider-Man here, a Doc McStuffins there, or a Princess Tiana. But seeing kids that look like them on their clothes and their little lifestyle um, items was kind of hard. But Epic Every Day is the small business founded by sisters, wives, and moms, and that are all HBCU graduates. And the two main starters of the company were Kara Johnson Graves and Janine Johnson Carr. And they were tired of seeing the same Disney princesses and hand full of melanated images on the market. So they launched a compelling line of apparel, backpacks, lunch bags, accessories, home goods, all to show uh, what they call a mocha representation. So it's all kinds of different chocolate skin tones with different hairstyles and hair textures, all focusing on elevating self-love and loving the skin that you're in and the hair texture you have. And EPIC stands for Empowered, Positive, Innovative, Innovative and Creative. And they want kids to feel like that every single day. And you can find all their amazing apparel and lifestyle goods on their website, shopepiceveryday.com. And make sure you follow them on Instagram at shop epic hmm, i love that tagline they have epic empowered positive innovative and created every single day every single day now i grew up with an aunt that i host a podcast with who is the queen of giving experiences and if you don't know what that means instead of a gift that you might toss away you'll forever have this memory this moment this travel experience and it may spark something so for those of you like my aunt carol who love to travel and give the gift of experiences not only during the holidays but all year long my next gift is for you now if you were inspired by our Martha's Vineyard episode, or you love all things luxury. I know there's a Black girl in luxury movement on the internet um, right now. I want to present to you a Cabwa Bed and Breakfast Inns. Started by husband and wife team Glenn Pogue and Monique Greenwood, who was an editor-in-chief over at Essence for some time. They fell in love with the vibe of bed and breakfasts after a romantic weekend they spent at an inn, the Buttonwood Inn in New Jersey. Now, Monique knew that she could give that same experience. So their first inn was the Acabwa Mansion in Brooklyn, and it opened in 1995 to rave reviews, despite their kids calling it the Haunted Mansion when they first saw it. <laughs> I can imagine one of those old brownstones <laughs> that hadn't been renovated would look a little haunted at, at, at some time. Now, the couple's extensive restoration of that property was documented on the popular HGTV series, Restore America. Now, after the Brooklyn mansion, they launched a Cabo by the Sea in Cape May, New Jersey in 2002. Their next launch was in 2003 in Washington, D.C., in New Orleans in 2005, and their crown jewel 
is the mansion on Noble Lane. It is a boutique spa and resort. They host weddings, big girl sleepovers, family reunions, and corporate getaways. And it's nestled in the Pennsylvania Pocono. So it's about two hours away from New York and maybe two and a half hours away from Philadelphia. Now, on a sentimental note, that bed and breakfast that had Glenn and Monique fall in love with the idea of bed and breakfast stays, the Buttonwood Inn, came up for purchase in the early 2000s, and they bought that too. They spoke with the realtor and they knew the owners that were ready to buy. So they snatched up the Buttonwood Inn and put that as another jewel in their crown. So please visit their website at acabwa.com and book. You know, they have full-time getaways. They have overnight stays. They even give discounts for people who live within 15 miles of any of their inns. So please check them out at acabwa.com. And if you're like me, who loves reality shows, they have a TV show on OWN called Checked In that talks about their family's journey and the, the ups and downs in everyday life of innkeeping at the mansion on Noble Lane. Mm, well, I think I've got to have a talk with Uncle Claude because I can imagine these properties would make great getaways. And I think I want to go to every one of them. I think so. I'm turning 40. So this might be a treat to myself in 2022. I like that idea. Now, for those of us with a sweet tooth, or if you love someone with a sweet tooth, let me introduce you to the Harlem Chocolate Factory. Now, when I went to their website, my mouth just began to water. They water. They have brownstone chocolate bars and all kinds of flavor of chocolate, truffles and bonbons as well. Now, the Harlem Chocolate Factory is an artisan chocolate company, of course, based in Harlem, and they convey various cultural experiences of Harlem through chocolate. They use fresh ingredients and only the highest quality of chocolate. They use a European technique and use molecular gastronomy and flavors to embody the unique range of experiences in Harlem. So think of eating soul food at Sylvia's with their sweet potato pie flavor or the spiciness of Mexican chilies in their Spanish Harlem bar. Each bar is lovingly hand-wrapped in an original photograph of Harlem with a message from the owner, Jessica Spaulding, and she is still the company's head chocolatier. They have a shop in Harlem on 2363 Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard, as well as their website, harlemchocolatefactory.com. So with flavors like Uncle Nearest that has Uncle Nearest whiskey, after school snacks that taste like chocolate and strawberry and peanut butter, and across 110th Street, as well as First Night on Linux, you'll be sure to satisfy the sweet tooth lover on your list. Ooh, that would be me. <laughs> now for the person who was absolutely impossible to shop for, or a person who likes a certain uh, sports team or fandom or anything that your mind can think of, I'm going to recommend to you Treasure Box Gifts and Candles located in Dallas, Texas. Now, the owner, Dee Dee Newsom, makes custom t-shirts, apparel, home goods, tumblers, domino sets, wine glasses, and wonderful smelling candles. So anything your imagination can come up with, Didi can put it on a cup or, or anything that you need. 
I've been a personal customer uh, for the past three years of Treasure Box and Gifts. And every time I call, I get top-notch service from Didi herself. She will sit down with you and come up with an idea that you will like. She, in, she works hard to make sure your vision comes true. So right now you can follow her on Instagram at Treasure Box Gifts and Candles, as well as follow her on Facebook at Treasure Box Gifts and Candles. And you can message her directly with any of your imaginative ideas. Wow. Well, Courtney, what a lineup. Now we need to make sure our listeners know none of these are sponsored by the businesses that you've talked about. We just think they're great businesses and they have a lot to offer. So check them out. And, you know, as I was listening to you, I heard quite a few on the list that sound like gifts I'd like to receive. So let's take a break. And while I make out my uh, wish list, and when we come back, We'll get a few more updates on this season's episodes. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry?, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course systemic racism see it say it confront it all that waiting for you at www.podpage.com why are they so angry see you there all righty we are back and uh, after hearing about all those great gifts i'm anxious now to hear about some of those episodes that we did this season and how some of those stories have turned out so i'm going to give it back to you courtney what do you have for us Well, and Carol, just like the Sundown Town episode, the one we did titled A Plot Most Foul, Silencing the Black Vote was hair-raising. That's the episode where we talked about past and present efforts to suppress the Black vote. And the Ocoee massacre was one of the most extreme examples. Ocoee, Florida is a small community within Orange County, Florida, which includes Orlando. Now, on November 2nd, 1920, white citizens from Ocoee, Orlando, and nearby Winter Garden shot and killed an estimated 500 Black citizens after two men, Mose Norman and July Perry, tried to vote. July Perry initially was arrested and taken to an Orlando jail, but he was then taken from that jail by the mob and shot multiple times and left hanging strung up from an Orlando light post. According to the show Defender, the sign left nearby said, this is what we do to N-words that vote. Oh boy, that was a tough episode. Really bad. Really, really tough. Now the newspaper treated the massacre as if the black, it was a black uprising. The headline the next day included race trouble at a Coe claims two white victims. The number of black people murdered was never verified, was never been verified, but not everyone was killed. Um, they were burned out and forced to leave. And the town remained all white for the next 40 years. So all these people were killed or run out of town, but the the newspaper never reported on them. They just said there were two white victims. Mm. Exactly. And that's a, a modus operandi that we see in a lot of these uh, town massacre, black town massacre episodes that we've done. 
Now, in recent years, the city of Ocoee has taken steps to acknowledge its dark and deadly history by honoring the victims of the 1920 Ocoee massacre with historic markers and information about the atrocity. The city also took steps to move forward by conducting diversity training, including the police chief, fire chief, and senior staff. The effort was championed by the city's first Black commissioner, George Oliver, who was supported by the city commission itself. Now, in addition to those steps, you know, taking the diversity training and actually acknowledging what happened and how we can move forward, additional steps were taken. The state legislator created a scholarship fund for the descendants of the Ocoee massacre. Senator Randolph Bracey, who championed the legislation, said the state played a role. They deputized the mob at that time, and they didn't do a proper investigation. So they were complicit in this massacre. I think it's appropriate that the state play a role in addressing the redress of the descendants. Now, the ECOE scholarship program was approved as a part of the Florida state budget by the House and the state Senate. A total of $305,000 will be made available yearly for 50 scholarships, which equals $6,100 per student. The money can go towards any post-high school education. African-American students who live in Ocoee are eligible, as are the descendants of the victims of the Ocoee massacre. Descendants of the victims of the massacre do not have to reside in Ocoee to be eligible for the scholarship. Instead of calling the scholarship reparation, Bracey considers it a compensation for the role the state played in the massacre. Bracey also ensured that $600,000 was included in the state budget to help fund a documentary called July in November, telling the story of July Perry, who was the initial target of the Ocoee massacre. In 2020, another one of, one of Bracey's bills was approved requiring the Ocoee massacre be taught in all public Florida schools. Well, you know, Courtney, the, all of those actions are amazing. We don't often see that kind of effort to address uh, wrongs done in communities. And uh, that community and the entire state of Florida denied that the Ocoee massacre ever happened. So now it's like a 180 degree turn. And these steps are uh, being taken to right that wrong that was so, so egregious. Now, in that episode, we talked about hundreds of communities around the country where Blacks were massacred and run off their properties. So those communities could really take a lesson from Ocoee and from the state of Florida. Now, women were at the center of several of our episodes this season, but one of our favorites was military sheroes that highlighted the heroic of the U.S. Army's all-female six triple eight battalion during world war ii as you'll recall and carol the all-black female six triple eight central postal directory battalion faced daunting odds when they were assigned to tackle a six-month backlog of mail for soldiers fighting in europe during world war ii but staying true to their motto no male equals low morale they didn't allow anyone or anything to deter them from their mission what they had been told would take six months, the women completed in three. With a new tracking system they created, the women processed an ad average of 65,000 pieces of mail per shift. They achieved unprecedented 
unprecedented success and efficiency in solving the military postal problems, and they went on to work their same magic in France, wiping out the mail backlog in another record time. Sadly, however, the women returned home after their exemplary service to no fanfare or recognition, but I'm happy to report that these unsung sheroes are now getting the honor and acclaim they deserve. In November 2018, after several years of planning and fundraising, a monument to the 6888 Central Postal Directory Battalion was dedicated at Buffalo Soldier Park in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. In April 2019, a documentary, The 6888 by Lincoln Penny Films, premiered at the Military Women's Museum and served as the impetus for Congress to author legislation to honor these women with a Congressional Gold Medal, Congress's highest expression of national appreciation for distinguished achievements. Now, earlier this year, the U.S. Senate unanimously passed Senator Jerry Moran's legislation to award the Congressional Gold Member Medal to the members of the 6888. The bill hasn't passed the House yet, so we urge our listeners to call their congressional representatives and ask them to approve this bill for this worthy group of military women. And just when you thought that most of the stories regarding these legendary women have been told, it was a recent discovery that 14 of the 855 women from the 6888 have have a final resting place at America's most hallowed ground, the Arlington National Cemetery. Well, Courtney, it may be late in coming, but the 6888 Battalion deserves every honor that can be bestowed on them. If you don't think so, just listen to our episode about them and you listeners will become believers. Now, shifting from the battlefield to the playing field, let's talk about our three-part series entitled Recreation and Racism, Examining Systemic Racism in Places Like National Parks, Campgrounds, Roller Skating Rinks, and Amusement Parks. Now, at one time, Blacks were barred from public swimming pools, amusement parks, skating rinks, and even national and state parks. And for years, groups like the NAACP and other civil rights organizations staged sit-ins and protests to gain access to these spaces. Eventually, the barriers began to fall and recreation facilities, for the most part, were welcoming the Black clientele. Now, one recreation venue that's become more available to Blacks is the campground. The idea of camping outdoors, hiking, nature trails, or fishing in secluded spots wasn't a high priority for Black people. It was even considered dangerous, but there has been an uptick in the number of Black families and groups who enjoy and partake in outdoor activities like camping. The website Travel Noir reports the good news that there are at least 25 Black-owned campgrounds that are open and ready for business. Cobble's Landing is an example of one of the 25 campgrounds. Currently billing itself as a multi-purpose campground, Cobble's Landing offers a unique outdoor experience specifically designed for Black families to feel more comfortable in the outdoor space. Fishing, camping, hiking are also available, as well as ATV and bike trails. Now, when it comes to amusement parks, a lot has changed 
um, in that space as well. Banning Blacks from public swimming pools and amusement parks is a relic of the past. In fact, some parks are making an effort to be more inviting and inclusive for Black people and people of color. Now, as a fan of Disney, I know I have slandered good old Walt a couple times for some of his <laughs> shaky choices. You know, the, the Mammy restaurant. Oh, and boy. The, and the chicken plantation restaurant. Yes, yes. But I will say the Imagineers and those magical hands over at Disney are changing a bit of that narrative. I'm glad to say that the place that's built as the happiest place on earth is taking strides to become more diverse by making its holiday celebrations more inclusive to fans this year. According to CNN, both uh, Florida's Disney World and California's Disneyland have introduced diverse Santa Claus characters at meet and greets across the theme parks. And I'm a member of a Black Disney group on Facebook, and a lot of the parents were overwhelmed at seeing a Black Santa. So that is definitely a good thing. Now, this marks the first time Santa will be portrayed by Black actors on Disney properties in the theme park's entire history. A Disney spokesperson told CNN that Santa is represented differently around the, around the world, and therefore, they're going to reflect that diversity on, in Disney parks. Well, 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 I am so pleased to hear that because as someone who collects Black Santa figures and items, I'm thrilled to know I can now see a Black Santa at Disney. So may have to make a special trip and get a picture taken with one of those. Now, Courtney, our listeners may not be aware they can uh, get even more Why Are They So Angry by joining our private Facebook community. Uh, when this recap of our episodes is just a small sliver of some of the work that we do. We do have a private Facebook community. And if you want to keep up with what's going on and know more about uh, and go deeper into this whole business of examining systemic racism, just search on Facebook for Why Are They So Angry Learning Community, answer a few questions, and then join the group. The community expands on some of the topics we've covered in the podcast with timely posts six days a week. Uh, we have surprise Facebook live events, uh, community polls, giveaways, and even invitations to live Zoom sessions where community members can talk with each other and us about books and films from our curated list as well as other topics. And uh, we're finalizing the film list, but the book selections are already solid. So um, in addition to some of those gifts that Courtney talked about, Here's something else you could add to that list uh, of books uh, to your, your gift list, because these are books that we're going to be reading in 2022. Uh, in January, the inner work of racial justice, healing ourselves and transforming our communities through mindfulness. In March, we're going to be talking about white evangelical racism, the politics of morality in America. In May, We'll be dealing with the book titled Field Notes on Allyship, Achieving Equality Together, an anthology. In July, we'll take up the book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Come September, we'll talk about Black fatigue, how racism erodes the mind, body, and spirit. And in November, we'll be talking about nice racism, how progressive white people perpetuate racial harm. And we'll put the titles of those uh, books down in the um, show notes, as well as the links 
that Courtney gave for some of those businesses in case you want to buy the books or get those gifts. So Courtney, whew, it's been a delightful season and I am looking forward to creating more content in 2022 that pulls back the curtain on systemic racism in America so our listeners can use that knowledge to confront and dismantle it. We're looking forward to another big year. I am just as excited, but last but not least, I would like to start a new tradition. Oh, I love traditions. I love traditions. What is it? For our new, uh, for our year end shows. Now, for anyone who has been listening to the podcast from our episode from season one, Presidents Behaving Badly, I have had an ongoing beef with one Rutherford B. Hayes. We've gone at it and just, uh, and he pops up everywhere, but I can't let Rutherford get all of the shine. And I gotta have to, you know, pull back a little bit of my vitriol on good old (laughs) Rutherford. Well, I don't know if I'd call it giving him shine, maybe more like giving him shade, but anyway. I've been been quite shady. The man (laughs) had shoes thrown at him during his presidency and here I am putting more coals on his head. So what I've done is created the Rutherford B. Hayes Awards for a person, persons, an entire state, anyone who has tried to derail the process and progress that comes with dismantling or revealing systemic racism. Wow, that is quite an award. I don't think I want to get that and whoever gets it. (laughs) It's not an award that you want. No. Now, this year, there were many nominees, but I'm going to choose, it's a group effort. Every single person who participated, who uh, championed on, who thought they could get away with, or thought they were actually going to do something on January 6th, the attack on the Capitol. Not only did you try to disrupt dis- democracy under the guise of protecting democracy, you looked a hot mess doing it. <laughs> Between the QAnon shaman, the man who pooped in somebody's office, the lady mm. from the real estate agent from Texas who said she wouldn't get arrested because she was rich and white and a woman, mm. every single one of you can take this L. so congratulations on winning the first Rutherford B. Hayes Awards and I hope 2022 is the year you deserve (laughs) that and more (laughs) I well you know Courtney you have surprised me that I tell you it's going to be hard to find a winner in 2022 to top this group but I bet we find someone, something, some state, somebody. Yeah, and um, it doesn't have to be someone current. It, I could find a new Rutherford B. Hayes in my pulling through the stories. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Well, but you as, just better hope you're not it. <laughs> yeah, you don't want, again, this is not an award you want. But as we bring this episode and our second season of Why Are They So Angry to a close, we would like to thank all of our listeners, new and old. I know people are just finding us, our friends on the Why Are They So Angry Facebook group, the public group, as well as the learning community, and all of the new people we've connected with through Why Are They So Angry, through talking, through learning, through books, even just saying hi to us on the internet. We would like to extend from our family to yours, whether it's a biological family or created family of friends, the happiest of holidays and all the hope of 
of the new year coming to you. And as always, if you miss us while we are on winter break, please visit us on our website at www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.